So again, we are in James chapter 4. And so now, if you haven't already, you can turn uh, your Bibles there. I just got a question to kick off our time together, which is what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? A lot of times when preachers prepare to preach, they come up with a question to to kind of get the juices flowing. But that's not my question, actually. That is James' question himself that he is going to put to us this morning. If you've ever come across two people fighting, maybe that's two of your children or nephews, or maybe that's two uh, of your fellow peers on the playground or at school, uh, maybe that's two politicians. And if you've asked them, well, what, do you, what started all this? Why are you guys fighting? Chances are that the index finger will fly out in you know, rapid speed and point to the other person and want to put the blame on others. But James will have none of that. He won't let us get away with that this morning. Rather, James seeks a much more honest, humble response. A response much uh, like a late English author, one of my favorites, G.K. Chesterton. Uh, Back in the early 1900s, the local newspaper in England there, the London Times, put out this inquiry to a lot of famous authors and said, looking for a response, I think maybe looking to engage in a conversation to start a dialogue, they they posed the question, what is wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton wrote back a very lengthy response, which I will read word for word in its entirety, and this is what his reply was. Dear sir, I am, sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. Dear sir, I am. What's wrong with the world? I am. And that's where James desires to take us today. What's wrong with the world? Where do quarrels and where do fights come from? To answer that, rather than looking at our favorite news channel or listening to our favorite podcast or turning to a book, we just need to look within ourselves and look at God's book for answers, answers that Scripture provides. We've said multiple times in this sermon series that um, James, though he is a New Testament writer, that it this book that he reads very much like the wisdom literature found in the Old Testament Proverbs. But today, that old te- those Old Testament Proverbs will give way to an Old Testament prophet, prophet rather, and his withering rebuke. James pulls no punches, so fasten your seatbelts. Today, I'm going to break down our time together into three sections, and I cannot help myself when it comes to alliteration, so please forgive me. Uh, But our sections, our time together will be three sections, our perverted pleasures, God's purifying passion, and our path of penitence. Couldn't help myself, like I said. Our perverted pleasures, God's purifying passion, our path of penitence. So with that framing in place, let's dive into the first chunk of our text. James 4, 1 through 4. This is what James says. What causes quarrels, what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 
The previous chapter Pastor Derek preached on last week, James laid out this beautiful and compelling vision of what a life lived by wisdom looks like. That it's marked by a humble, others-centered, holy heart of service. The group of believers that James is writing to, however, they don't seem to embody much of this. Quite the opposite. They're plagued with fighting, with quarreling with each other. There's favoritism. We saw that in chapter 2. There's judgmentalism. There's covetousness and more. So James asks a rhetorical question that he already knows the answer to. What causes all these fights? He's wanting them to ask that question for themselves. Why are you so at odds with the brothers and sisters that you are called to be a part of the very same body with? James goes right to the heart of things. It's not a lack of communication skills. It's not a a generational or a cultural misunderstanding. It's not even primarily like some oppressive attack from Satan that's stirring these things up. There's no, the devil made me do it here. That is an option. It's their hearts and their passions and their desires. They're at war within them. The passions and the desires that are at war in you and at war in me. Every one of us who is in Christ and who also has Christ in us also at the same time has an old fleshly nature as well. That old man has been crucified with Christ, amen, and yet it still executes and um, leverages and exercises agency in our lives. A number of scriptures highlight this. Just three I'll share. Galatians 5.17 For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Romans 7, 23. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to to the law of sin that dwells in my members. I think even most clearly, 1 Peter 2, 11. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. So we see throughout Scripture that there's a warring inside of us. That fleshly desire finds expression in many ways. Again, back in chapter 2, James was warning against showing favoritism to the wealthy in hopes of getting something from them. Maybe I can get some box sweets to the Seahawks, the Mariners game. That, that guy's wealthy. He has a lot of clout and um, power. Here in chapter 4, we see that when favoritism and kissing up don't work, sinful desire breeds just this murderous hatred and resentment. Well, if you're not going to invite me to, to join you in your position of power, I'm going to pull you down to my level. Gossip a little about you to get back? No problem. I'll make it sound like a prayer request. Attack you on social media? I'm just speaking the truth. Unfriend you on social media and and just avoid you in the grocery store. You know what? I'm just setting healthy boundaries and practicing some good soul care, self-care, Cold War style. Our means and our methods of fighting and quarreling take many forms, sometimes aggressive, sometimes passive-aggressive, but they are all centered on ourselves. And we even bring that pleasure-seeking self-centeredness into our relationship with God, James says. He tells us that we're either self-reliant or God-defiant. We either skip prayer altogether, you don't have because you don't ask, James says, 
Or if we do make an attempt at it, it's not so that God's name would be hallowed and that his kingdom would come more fully here on the earth, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, in our families, but rather so that our fiefdoms, our little kingdoms of pleasure would be enlarged and enhanced. So if and when we do pray, we often don't receive what we're asking for because our praying, if we're honest, it lacks a yieldness to God. We're still at the center of our requests. Not God, not the praise of his glorious grace, but God has no regard for prayers that have no regard for his plans and his purposes. Psalm 66, 18 states, if I had cherished, if I had regarded sin in my heart, the Lord wouldn't have heard. And James says that as well. You ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly. That you may spend it on your pleasures. You're treating God as a vending machine. All this quarreling and pretentious religious activity, it grieves James deeply because it grieves God deeply to see this heart-rooted fleshly behavior amongst his people. So James drops that familial language that he's used several times of brothers and sisters and he just throws this haymaker that seems to come out of nowhere. It says, you adulterous people, exclamation point. Ouch. How did we go from being called brothers to adulterers and adulteresses? The church that James writes to claims to love God, but their pursuit of power and money and prestige and fleshly pleasure reveals a different reality. They have pursued other lovers rather than remain faithful to their one true spouse who has pursued them in love. As I said in the intro, James has left his prescriptive Proverbs for a time and he is now channeling Old Testament prophets through whom God spoke, including Hosea, who writes in chapter 2, a very withering um, rebuke. Turn us there. Hosea 2, verses 5 through 8. Where is my marker? I will read it off my page. So James, or excuse me, Hosea says this. For their mother has played the whore. This, by the way, is not really like your Christian coffee mug Bible verse. Um, So their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, God says, I will hedge up her way with thorns and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me than now, then than now. And she did not know that it was I, God says, who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Israel forgot it often. We forget it often. Whoever wishes to be A friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Jesus said to himself, you you can't serve two masters. You can't. It's impossible. 
We can be devoted to God or we can be devoted to the world. We can't be devoted to both. You can't serve two masters. You can't have two spouses. But we will be married to one. Our heart will be captivated by something or someone. It is impossible for them not to be. We are created as creatures to worship. We're created to find delight and pleasure outside of ourselves. That we find pleasure outside ourselves, that isn't the issue. It's what or who we find that fulfillment and that satisfaction in. That, that's the issue. That's the, the focus. So what about you? Is there an area of your life this morning that has an inordinate amount of attractional force over your heart? Something you've become friends with and that friendship is pushing God out of the picture and more and more and causing fights and quarrels with others or even a war within yourself. Could be a number of things. Maybe you won't be satisfied until you get that certain promotion or that certain salary. Maybe you desire to be a, a part of a certain peer group at school. You want your peers to see you as funny or athletic or smart. You won't be satisfied until you feel like you've got that. Maybe you're not just opinionated, but you're unhealthfully absorbed in politics and all that goes on in our country. Maybe you're addicted to pornography or to alcohol or to some other substance and you're at war within yourself for not being able to break free. Maybe it's the idolizing of stability, that savings or a, a set firm schedule gives you when God is calling you to spend more of yourself and your resources for him. This can all sound like puritanical moralism, but Peter and others remind us that these unchecked, unsubordinated passions wage war on our souls. And they do that by making us opposed to God. Moving on to our second section. Left to ourselves, we would be trapped in these perverted pleasures. But the good news is that we're not left to ourselves. When we never have been. We, the church, are the bride of Christ, and he has a purifying passion for us. So we read on, turn back to James 4. We read on in verses 5 and 6. Or do you suppose it's in, it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It is the human condition to wander, for us to find friendship with the world, to pursue other lovers. If you have walked with Christ for any time, you know this. Like Israel, we are all quick to tell God, yes, we'll keep your commandments. We'll remain steadfast in sickness and in health till death do us part. That's what we'll be as a spouse until we don't do that. Several of our youth, as I mentioned, are at camp. And if you've ever had a camp experience before, any sort of maybe even retreat experience, you know there's often just this high of, oh my goodness, I'm so loved by God. God is so amazing. And I hope, and I've been praying for our boys and all of our youth, that they would have that experience, that they would draw closer to him and, and feel him drawing closer to them. 
But I also know that that reality is that that high doesn't last forever. Even if all that happens, that energy and that emotion of that experience, it, it will wane. And friendship with the world and its ways will look good and look a little bit more and more appealing after that happens. That's not unique to youth. That is true of all of us. So it should be of both immense conviction and also immense comfort to you and to me to read that God yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in you and in me. He doesn't do that over animals or trees or flowers or anything else that he's created. He certainly takes delight in all those things and their beauty and uh, his handiwork in them, but he only yearns jealously over humanity. That's convicting and that's sobering because in Deuteronomy 4 and elsewhere in Scripture, we see that holy side of that jealousy, the pure moral side. We see that those who break covenant with God will experience him as a consuming fire, Deuteronomy 4 says, a jealous God. And that's what James has been speaking to. If you want to pursue friendship with the world, be warned. You are making yourself an enemy of God. But it's also comforting at the same time, this jealousy, this yearning. It is good, it is right, it is pure, and it is relentless. I can definitely remember being jealous of Carly when I first started dating her, 18, 19 years of age. I didn't want her laughing at other guys' jokes. Why is she doing that? I didn't want her hanging out with other guys in study groups. Like, where does that leave us? Where does that leave me? But that jealousy wasn't pure and good, of course. It was born out of just a deep, deep insecurity on my part. It was wrong because I wasn't worthy of her complete devotion and worship, and I'm still not worthy of that, and I never will be. But that's not so with God. His jealousy isn't born out of a lack of insecurity. He's not afraid of getting dumped or divorced by us. He is completely satisfied and secure within himself, in the Godhead, and the inter- interdependent, loving, joyful relationships that exist between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. He doesn't need us. This isn't a Jerry Maguire movie where God says, you complete me. He's already complete in the Trinity, mysterious as that is. He has no need. But equally mysterious is that though he's complete, he still wants us. He still desires us. He yearns for an ever more intimate relationship with us. Our adultery, our unfaithfulness, they don't repel him. They grieve him, to be sure, but they don't repel him. He's completely opposed to our pride and in love. He will not tolerate it. And so he gives more and more grace. Paul says in Romans 5.20, Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That's the way of the king and his kingdom. That's the way and the heart of our husband. Why would we remain stiff-necked in our pride and not humble ourselves before this purifying passion and true love and abundant grace? The book, uh, Gentle and Lowly, has been getting quoted a lot, and I didn't bring it up with me. Thank you, love. It's been getting quoted a lot in uh, Christian circles, and rightly so. I love how Dane Ortland unpacks and envisions the heart 
of Christ towards sinners, of which we all are. In the chapter reflecting on John 6.37, where Jesus says, Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Dane writes this on page 63. It's a little longer, so hold fast with me. I did not get it up on the screen there. Fallen and anxious sinners are limitless in their capacity to perceive reasons for Jesus to cast them out. We are factories of fresh resistance to Christ's love. Even when we run out of tangible reasons to be cast out, such as specific sins or failures, we tend to retain a vague sense that given enough time, Jesus will finally grow tired of us and hold us at arm's length. Bunyan, John Bunyan, the author, understands this. He knows we tend to deflect Christ's assurances. And so there's this little dialogue here between Jesus and we sinners. So we say, no, no, wait, we say, cautiously approaching Jesus. You don't understand. I've really messed up in all kinds of ways. I know, he responds. Well, you know most of it, sure. Certainly more than what others know, but there's a perversity deep down inside of me that is hidden from everyone. I know it all. Well, the thing is, it's not just my past, it's my present, too. I understand, Jesus says. But I don't know if I can break free of this anytime soon. That's the only person, the only kind of person I'm here to help. The burden is heavy. It's heavier all the time. Then let me carry it. It's too much to bear, not for me. You don't get it. My offenses, Jesus, aren't directed toward others. They're directed against you. That I'm the one most suited to forgive them. But the more of the ugliness in me you discover, the sooner you'll get fed up with me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. He is pursuing you right now. He is pursuing me right now. He is wooing you right now. Our deepest joy, security, confidence, peace, our deepest hope is found in yielding to that beautifully jealous yearning of God for us and shaking off friendship with the world and all its lies. So we continue reading in James 4, 7 through 10. Resist the devil and he, excuse me, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. When our eyes are open to see our perverse pleasures for what they are as infidelity, as betrayal, as adultery, when our hearts are open to see his purifying passion for what it is, that it's relentless, never gives up, those two things call for a response of brokenness and contrition. We are called to be truly sorrowful for our sin, to shudder and to weep at the wretchedness of it. That's part of the purifying of our hearts and the minds that James 
is referring to. Those aren't states of being that we readily embrace. The world and our flesh, they lure us to pursue things that feel light and happy and pleasant and easy. We're lured to pursue cheap grace. We're lured to avoid mourning and sadness. That's just such a downer. I want to be happy. We're trained to affirm every single thing about who we are. There's nothing wrong with me. This is my true authentic self as it is right now. No change is required. In fact, it's everyone else, including God, who needs to change and learn to adapt to just the way I am. Accept me as I am right now. It's wrong. That is dead wrong. Godly grief is a good thing. Paul teaches that in 2 Corinthians 7, that it leads to repentance. It leads to a zeal to walk in righteousness. So my exhortation to you, and I think James's exhortation, is don't short-circuit that godly grief when the Spirit gives his conviction. Let yourself be humbled. Get low. Sit for a space and for a time in that place of brokenness, knowing that God will exalt you soon enough. It won't be gloom and sadness forever. The psalmist says, weeping may last for the night, but the joy comes with the morning. Our world and our hearts work overtime to minimize the God-belittling horror and ravages of sin. You know who else wants to minimize the horror of sin? Satan. I find verse 7 very, very curious. James calls us here at this part of his letter to resist the devil. I find that curious because it just sort of seems to me out of place. I would have expected this exhortation from James to say like, beware the devil and resist him. I would have expected that way back in chapter 1. That's where James says, don't say when you're tempted that God's tempting me. Like, nope, you don't get to do that. You know, when, you know where temptation comes from? James says it comes from your own desires that entice you. When those desires um, spring up, they give birth to sin. That sin leads forth to death. That would seem like a very natural place for, for James to have said, by the way, resist the devil. Like, during that whole conversation about sin and death. Even at the beginning of chapter 4, I would have expected him to say, where do wars and fights come from? Well, it's your desires, and it's Satan working with those desires, and it's just a really nasty combo. But he doesn't even mention Satan there either. He passes up that opportunity. So that seems odd to me that here we are in the middle of James's call to repentance and the call to humility and to submission when he calls us to resist the devil. Again, that seems out of place but I actually think it points to a really, really deep truth of the Christian life. You can be 100% certain that when the Holy Spirit sheds his convicting light in your heart to show you that unfaithfulness, that infidelity, that your sin, my heart, my sin, and the devil will go to work. They will try to dissuade us and frustrate our movement toward humility. And they'll do that in one of two ways. I'll just briefly mention the first and then we'll spend a bit more time on the second. The first way is just through self-defense with proud thoughts that want to throw off conviction and repentance altogether. 
you know what, this feeling badly about my thoughts and my heart and my actions, it just feels lousy, like, ah, it's just depressing. I've kind of already told God, I'm sorry, I mean, that's enough. I don't really need to bring this to the light for anyone else. I don't need to make any sort of change in my life. Like, I just, I just want to forget about it and move on. I'm good enough. Just, there's a self-defense response. God wants to go in and to clean out the wounds so that we can be truly healed. God wants to repair the relationship so that we can enjoy intimacy and shalom and wholeness. But we just want to just slap a bandit on. It's just a boo-boo. Let's just move on. We're human after all. Chill out, God. Self-defense is one of those ways that we will respond to the Holy Spirit's conviction. The other way that I want to spend a little more time on, though, is just through self-condemning thoughts. Seek to, to warp that godly sorrow into a worldly grief. Ah, I am such a loser and a failure. Why do I keep screwing up like this? It's no wonder that my life is such a mess. I am such a screw up. We just beat ourselves up and go like, oh, you want gloom? I'll go gloom. I'll, I'll take this in a really dark place because I'm such a loser and a moron. I invite you to turn with me to Luke 22 where I think we get a pretty good glimpse of this reality in Jesus' conversation with Peter. Luke 22, 31 through 34. I do love hearing pages turn, church. It is good to, to wield that sword. Uh, 31 through 34, and then we'll be skipping down to verse 60. This is about uh, Peter's denial of Jesus. And so we pick it up in 31. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But, Simon, I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, oh Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, oh, I, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Skipping down to 60. Peter is just in the midst of denying Jesus for the third time. Verse 60. But Peter said, man, I don't know who you're talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed or the horn of the train blew. <laughs> and the Lord turned and looked at Peter and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Jesus' prediction about Peter's denial comes true. So what are we to make of Jesus' prayer for Peter? That his faith would not fail. It would seem like Jesus' prayer went unanswered. Peter's faith did fail in a sense. He denied knowing the Messiah, his Savior. He wanted to save his own skin, save his own neck. So he saw an opportunity and he pursued that and denied Jesus. He did not hold fast. Peter, whose name means rock, turned into a pile of sand. But I don't think Jesus was praying that Peter wouldn't deny him. I don't think that's the holding fast that Jesus was praying for. I mean, Jesus predicts that he's going to deny him, and he says, when you have turned, after you've denied me. 
He knew that was a certainty. So how was Jesus praying for Peter's faith to not fail? He was praying for Peter to have faith in his abundant grace and mercy to fully walk out repentance when he became aware of how wicked and wretched his sin was. We see that he wept bitterly, having looked, I, don't even, I can't even picture what that experience was, to have denied him the third time and then to look at Jesus, just to have that conviction that he did the very thing, the th- the very thing that Jesus said he was going to do. But I believe, again, that Jesus' prayer was that he would have faith in Jesus' abundant grace, that he wouldn't be crushed by the despair, the worldly grief of knowing what a sinner he and we all are. He was praying that Satan, the accuser, wouldn't be able to pervert the conviction of the Holy Spirit, that Satan wouldn't be able to cause Peter to go beyond godly grief into a place of self-loathing, self-hatred, being so focused on himself and his failings that he lost sight of Jesus, jealous, relentless, yearning for him. Jesus' prayer did not fail in the least. It did not go unanswered. Satan wanted to sift Peter like wheat, but Jesus prayed that his faith wouldn't fail and in the power of Jesus' gracious sovereignty, having turned back to the Savior, excuse me, having turned from the Savior, turned his back on the Savior, he turned back again to the Savior. And church, you had better believe that a man or a woman who has faced the wretchedness, the depravity of their sin, and who has at the same time experienced the infinitely greater mercy and covering and jealousy and yearning of Jesus, that brother or that sister in Christ has a lot to strengthen, to go and turn back to the family of God and strengthen them with. Your brothers and your sisters need you to strengthen them with that humble, deeply received grace. So let Christ offer that to you through spirit-wrought repentance. Resisting Satan and our flesh in these situations is not easy, but the warning and the command to do so, they come with this amazing promise. When you resist him, he'll flee. We don't have to just imagine that it's just going to be a constant barrage and attack and assault. When we resist him in faith and hope in in trusting the promises of God, Satan will flee. So what does that resistance look like? Lots of things uh, that could be said here, but in part, resistance involves taking just our thoughts captive. When we sin and God brings conviction, if we're tempted towards self-defense or self-despair, we see both for the lie that they are and we name them out loud as such and we replace those lies with the truth of God's word. So I want to give you Micah 7, uh, 8 through 9 as a great passage to turn to in your own life in these situations. Micah 7, verses 8 through 9. This is just one of many scriptures you could turn to in resisting Satan when he wants to try to beat the tar out of you. That's what God's word says. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. Excuse me, verse 8. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. 
When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes justice for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. On the one hand, Micah is saying, shut up flesh, shut up Satan. Don't rejoice over me. I'm not a victim. I'm not defeated. I'm not cast off by God. I'm not abandoned by him. I am still loved, even having sinned. I will be brought out into the light. On the other hand, Micah is also expressing a patience to give space for his soul to reflect on God's holy hatred for sin and the infinite price that Christ has paid to bear the Father's execution of justice in our place. So he's willing to bear some of the, the weight, the discomfort, the gloom of that for a little bit. Not as a means of paying for sin, but as a way of rightly valuing the means that were already paid for our sin. Take note too in this passage back in James. That while we have this amazing promise that resisting Satan forces him to flee from us, the overwhelming focus in the passage is on our relationship to God. Satan is real. Paul tells us not to be unaware of, of his schemes, but our primary focus isn't on the adversary. Our primary focus is on deepening our relationship with God. So James follows the exhortation to resist the devil with an even more important command and a promise to, to draw near to God, knowing that in drawing near to him, he draws near to us. It's not enough for us to, to move away from Satan. We need to be pursuing someone who is greater and more worthy of that. We can't just try to fight our own. We need to be pursuing our Father and, and being in his presence. And we do that by talking with him in prayer, by listening and hearing from him through reading his word, by gathering with his family, our brothers and sisters, by journaling our grief and our gratitude, by not seeking to be served as much as to, be, uh, to, to serve others, by fasting, by feasting, uh, by many other things. So just in closing, God jealously yearns for you and for me, and his love is so much better than life. Where might God this morning be convicting you to repent of an adulterous attraction to something that's not of him? You can not ignore or try to run from or not just cave into grief for that conviction, but you can face it. Resisting the devil, knowing that our gracious God will exalt you in his perfect grace and perfect time. Let's pray.